Open your Bibles if you would to Romans chapter 5. Let's read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Scripture declares, Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. If through the offense of one many be dead, and that's Adam's death, which plunged us into death spiritually, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace. Look at that, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So look at what that verse there brings forth, that in Adam we all became sinners, and thus we deserve judgment. But it says here, praise be to God, but the free gift is of, of offenses unto justification. So in Christ... We have all our sins forgiven. There's no judgment in Christ. That's wondrous, isn't it? No judgment in Christ because all our sins were judged at Calvary as believers. For by one man's offense, that's Adam's death, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now look at that. Who is the gift of righteousness? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. You don't hear much about the righteousness of Christ anymore because people are trying to establish their own righteousness. But without the righteousness of Christ, no one will be in heaven. And praise be to God. He clothes his people in his perfect spotless righteousness. That's why he came here to this earth. When he lived on this earth, he came, number one, he came to save his people from their sins, right? But number two, he came to live that perfect life as our substitute in our place, weaving that coat of righteousness. Because remember, he's sinless. The scripture says that he was manifest to take away our sin, and in him was no sin. So the very reason he came here, the very reason he was manifested, was to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. If he's sinless, if he's perfect, who did he fulfill on the law of God for? For us. For we who are his people, that we might be clothed in that perfect righteousness. That's the wedding garment, beloved. The righteousness of Christ is the wedding garment that the saints in heaven are clothed in. It's perfect. It's spotless. That's why, that's why Christ is able to present us spotless before the throne of God. Without blame. That's why. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So by one man's death, Adam, we were plunged into sin and judgment. But through Jesus Christ, it says, they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. We're made alive in Christ. We who are his people. And then it says, look at this there in verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came. So when Adam fell, judgment fell on the human race. Upon all, every one of us, man, woman, and child. Every one of us. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men, the justification of life. So, all who believe are saved. Saved by the grace and mercy of God. Now, we know the cause of that, right? 
we looked at part of that this morning about the regeneration aspect of, of being born again and how that it's God who begot us. But who chose us in Christ? The Father. When did he do it? Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Now that just makes my mind go, wow, right? It does. It's, just in, it's, it's incredible that God loved a sinner like me from eternity. See, God didn't look down time and see who would choose him. No, he looked down in time and saw everybody dead in trespasses and sins and lost. And he chose to save this one and this one and this one and this one. A multitude that no man can number, the Scripture says. And if you're a believer, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in that number. Oh, my that's enough to make a Baptist shout, isn't it? Right? Oh, my goodness. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So, by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be made righteous. And that's incredible. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that we're going to look at that Greek word there for abound. In verse 20, the second one that ends the verse. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So this morning I'd like us to look at God's sovereign abounding grace and the nature of it. The nature of it. Here in verse 20, we have a wonderful portion of scripture. Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, sin abounds in this world, doesn't it? But grace abounds even more. We might not see it, but it does. God's still doing miracles, right? He saves the soul here and He saves the soul there and that's a miracle of God. Oh my! He's still the great God. He hasn't changed. He never will be. He never will change. So the latter part of verse 20 is what we'll be focusing on. Look at this. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It says in the latter part of that verse. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, so that we might know, right, the law. What does the law do? It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our imperfection. It shows us that we cannot satisfy God by our works. Because I'll tell you, there's no one who can keep the law. There's only one who kept the law. And that's the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that in the place of his people. But they're not one of us who can keep the law of God. Now that doesn't mean it's not holy, because it is. It's holy, isn't it? But we can't keep it. My, oh my. And so it says here, But where, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now the Greek word for the end of this verse, do you know what it means? means to superabound. <laughs> so sin abounds and grace superabounds. Superabounds. So God's grace is superabounding grace. Superabounding grace. It means to abound much more, exceeding. It means to abound beyond measure. You've heard me often say we cannot plumb the mercy and grace of God. We cannot measure the mercy and grace of God. You can't measure it. It's boundless. 
It's like an ocean that has no depth. Or no, or, no, no depth. It's like an ocean that has no bottom. It has no bottom. That's the mercy of God. And remember, our sins are what? Said to be thrown into the sea of God's forgetfulness. Isn't that wonderful? He casts them behind his back to see him no more. If something's behind your back, do you see it? You don't see it, do you? He doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees us in Christ. Oh, it's glorious. It also means to overflow, to enjoy abundantly. And now God's people, we enjoy the grace of God, don't we? We rejoice in the grace of God, in Christ. We rejoice that God the Father sent His Son into this world to save us from our sins. We rejoice in that. That's grace, isn't it? That's mercy. And that's abounding mercy. And we who are sinners can say, that's abounding mercy. That He'd save me. That He'd forgive me for all my sins. That's mercy. See, we don't get what we deserve. Not at all. Not, not at all. So no matter how much this verse is bringing out forth, that no matter how much sin is present, the grace of God is still superabounding. See, all we see is the terrible things going on in this world, right? In our minds, we look at these things and we think, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. Not in God's eyes. It's all going according to His plan and His purpose. Remember, He's God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so, God's grace is superabounding. There's, I'm hearing, I'm hearing of people all across the world. A friend of mine I know, he used to come up here, Heshemu. He came up here a couple of times. He's over in Africa. I've never seen him so much more happier now. He's over in Africa preaching the gospel. And he is so happy and so joyful. And you see these people just coming to hear the gospel. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Amazing. Now, we don't know that's happening here, right? Unless we see pictures of it. Unless we see... We have not... Lance up in Papua New Guinea. I heard that... I heard that the work that, that Lance Heller is doing in Papua New Guinea, there's churches springing up all through the jungles. We don't know that. We don't see that, right? God's grace is superabounding grace, beloved. Now, we know it. We've tasted that the Lord is gracious. We've tasted that as believers. We've tasted His graciousness. And we've tasted this superabounding grace. But we don't always see it being, being exercised all over the world. But it is. It is. My, oh my. It's incredible. So no matter how much sin is present, the grace of God is superabounding. Now, sin abounds in this world, but God's grace, do you know what, too? God's grace abounds. It superabounds in our lives. We can testify of that, can't we? Look what the Lord's done for us. Look what He gives us. Look how He provides for us every single day. Look how He gives us grace and strength to carry on. Look what He gives us. Homes. Family. He's so good to us. 
but more, more, most importantly for His people, He saved us by His grace and by His mercy. How? By the shedding of His precious, precious blood. He gave His life for us. It's amazing grace. Think of this. Again, no matter how much sin is present, the grace of God is superabounding. Sin abounds in this world, but God's grace is superabounds in the life of believers. It'd be like putting out the flame from a match with a bucket of water. So you gotta you're you're standing there with a with a a match, and somebody throws a whole bucket of water on you. That's more than you ever need to put that match out, eh? That's how God's grace is superabounding. It's superabounding. God's grace is like asking for a cup of cold water to quench your thirst. You ever been really thirsty? Working outside and you come in and you're just parched. And you take a cup of, and I'll tell you what, a cup of cold water is like nothing else, is it? You take that cup of cold water and you drink that cup of cold water and it just quenches your thirst, doesn't it? See, God's grace quenches the thirst of believers. We hunger and thirst after the things of Christ. And God's grace and mercy quenches that thirst for us. That's why we come to hear the gospel again and again and again. Give me more water. Give me more of the water of life. I want to hear more about Christ. Give me more. <laughs> Once you get a taste, you can't stop drinking. <laughs> you can't stop drinking that grace and mercy of God. Oh, so where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. Oh, my. The grace of God is given from His throne above. We saw that in James Let's turn to the book of James. We're going through that book of James in our study in the morning. But look at this. James chapter 1. We'll read this again. Verses 18 and 19. Or actually verses 17 to 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Well, God's grace is a gift, isn't it? God's mercy is a gift. Where does it come from? It comes from above. And the good and perfect gift here spoken of is Christ. He comes from above. And coming down from the Father of, of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Mercy. Mercy. We don't get what we deserve. We receive mercy. So sin abounds in all its extent so that grace might be shown as abounding above sin. Contrast that. There's all this sin in the world and yet God's grace reigns. It's reigning grace. Oh yeah. God's not up there. You've heard me say God's not up there wringing His hands saying, oh please come to me, please come to me. I can't save you unless you come to me. You know the God of the Bible has compassion on whom here of compassion, has mercy on whom here of mercy. And God's people say, Praise God, I'm one of that number. 
mine. And God's grace gives pardon and eternal life to the believer in Christ. That's the key. In Christ. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. All our works are like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His what? Mercy. Grace. Grace and more grace. He has what? He has saved us. We can't save ourselves. But praise be to God, He has saved us. It's in the past tense. He did it all at Calvary. He saved us. He obtained eternal redemption, the Scripture says, for us. When did He do that? At Calvary's cross. It's wonderful. And God's grace restores communion with God. We saw in the text that we read, read that we fell in Adam. We lost communion with God in Adam. We're born physically but spiritually dead now. And now communion has been restored in Christ by the grace and the mercy of God. We fell in Adam. We lost that communion with God in Adam, but now it has been restored in Christ. That's why Paul said that he has a ministry of reconciliation. Be ye reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? As, as sinners in Christ, in Christ alone. We'll look at seven quick points here about God's grace. The first one is God's grace acts according acts freely according to His nature. God's grace acts freely according to His nature in love. He loves His people. He loves those He gave to Christ. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It's so clear here. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, look at this. He acts according to his own purpose. No one can thwart his purpose. No one can tell God what to do. No one. No one can twist God's arm. No one can guilt him into, because he's sinless. But no, you know how sometimes we can guilt people into doing it? You know, we, we, we often do it with our family members to our shame, right? We do. We, we make them feel guilty and then they, you know, I, I want to go out to lunch here. Oh, oh, I never get to go where I want to go. You know, but that's the kind of stuff that we, that we humans do. And then we end up going to the place where the person wanted to go just to make them happy, right? We both do, we all do it. No, we do. But see, God, God doesn't operate in that way. He doesn't operate in that way. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So right there, Scripture declares that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. 
Now look at this. He's going to take us all the way back to eternity. According as He has chosen us in Him, that's Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy. See, we're unholy by nature. But in Christ we're made holy. That we should be holy and without blame. By nature we're sinners full of blame. But in Christ we're made holy and we're without blame. Even though we're still sinners while we're on this earth. Isn't that amazing? Now, someone doesn't believe God's grace is superabounding. Just think about that. It's incredible. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. So, and look at this. According to the good pleasure of His will. God's will. What? To the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now here we see God moving in love. In whom we have redemption through His blood. There's, there's, our, there's our redemption purchased by the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Again, how many sins? All of them. All of them. Oh, that's amazing. According to the riches of His grace. We're saved by the grace of God. And that grace is boundless. Boundless. Wherein he hath abounded toward us, again, see we're abounding, toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. So God's, <laughs> my oh my, God's grace, he acts freely according to his own nature and love. And it says here, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, in verse 9 of Ephesians 1 9. My oh my. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, the fact that he chose us in Christ, the fact that we're redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his good pleasure. Let that sink in. If you're saved, you're saved according to the good pleasure of God. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. That's superabounding grace. Which he purposed in himself. And we know the scripture says in Daniel chapter 4 that, that no man can, can thwart God's will. No man can say to God, what, what doest thou? And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing in his eyes, and yet he has mercy on us. We're reputed like nothing, and he has mercy on us. He sends his son to die for us. That's grace, isn't it? That's superabounding grace. The next point is, Grace is uncaused in the recipient. There is no cause in us that God would show us grace. None. Not even a stitch. No cause at all. In us that God would show us grace. People say, well, I'm not as bad as that fellow down the road. Oh, you're a sinner just like him. Or her. 
even though you might think you're better, you're not. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We who are in here who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be the first to tell you we're just sinners saved by grace. And we still struggle and we're saved sinners now. And our lips that used to curse His name are now full of praise for Him. Who can do that but God? Who can cause that to be but God? And the fact that there's no there's nothing in us. There's nothing in us that is deserving of this mercy and grace. Makes it superabounding in our eyes too, doesn't it? That God would have mercy on a sinner like me. Scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy superabounding mercy hath begotten us into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept 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 <laughs> were kept how? by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Why do God's people not quit believing? Because God keeps us believing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Keeps us looking to Christ. Do we go through times of trial and trouble and, and doubts and sorrow? And Yes, we do, but He keeps us looking to Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And we are saved by the grace of God and there's absolutely nothing in us that would cause God to save us. That's mercy. That's grace. The next point is the grace of God is sovereign grace. He is sovereign. Since the grace of God is not reliant on our works in any way, And since we do not merit that grace in any way, God's grace can act and be given to whomever God chooses. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Do you know what oftentimes it's given to the vilest of sinners? Isn't that amazing? And we can say amen, right? We can say amen. Acts chapter 9. Look at this. Verses 11 to 16. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Taurus. For behold, he prayeth. Now Ananias has been told here to go to a certain place and seek out Paul who's called Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul had a reputation, didn't he? Now Ananias didn't know that God had done a work in Paul. Knocked him right off his horse, didn't he? But more so revealed himself to him. And look at this. 
And the scene in the vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord. See, God's people call him Lord, right? We call him Lord. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. Now look at this. Now Paul had a reputation. I've heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. So Paul is known as one of the vilest sinners to the Christian church at that time. He's going around taking Christians, throwing them in jail. They're being, they're being taken into the Colosseum. They're being, who knows what's being done to them. Going into people's houses and hauling them out. And he's got orders from the high priest in Jerusalem to do this. Oh, religion can be awful, can it? Grace changes everything. But religion can be awful. And look what it says here. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. So Paul had authority from the chief priests in Jerusalem to bind up all that call on the name of Christ. We have it pretty easy, don't we? People aren't doing that to us. said a few weeks ago, could you imagine sitting around the kitchen table with your family and in burst Paul with a bunch of other men and bind you up to take you back to Jerusalem just because you call on the name of Christ. My. And look what the Lord answers him. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. You know, every every single believer is a chosen vessel of God. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You're chosen in Christ, right? You're a vessel of honor. People say, well, that, that's an apostle Paul. That's true of every believer, though. <laughs> chosen vessels. Now, Paul was a chosen vessel in the fact that he was going to go to the Gentiles. But, you know, you were chosen the same time as Paul in Christ. That's before the foundation of the world. That's superabounding grace, isn't it? That's mercy beyond belief. But it's true. <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's not beyond belief. It's true. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we see there in that text even that God's grace is sovereign. It's uncaused. Here's Paul. Here's Paul. He's going to slaughter Christians. He's the last person people think the Lord would save. But he's a chosen vessel, beloved. Don't give up hope for your family members. You might think, oh, they're so far gone. No, no. The Lord saved me. He can save anybody. That's what John Newton wrote. He's the man who penned amazing grace. He said, if the Lord saved me, He can save anyone if it pleases Him to do so. <laughs> Don't ever give up hope for your family members. Don't ever give up hope for your friends. Pray for them. Just keep lifting them up. Ask big God to save them. If it be, if it be His will. Oh, my. 
So God's grace is sovereign and is uncaused in us. It's God acting according to His good pleasure. When the Lord saved you, He acted according to His good pleasure. And the fact that you are kept by God is God acting according to His good pleasure. Bring it home right now for today. He's acted in our lives as believers according to His good pleasure. That's incredible. That's absolutely amazing. The next point is, God's grace cannot act where there is ability. If we think we have the ability to save ourselves, God's grace is not there. Grace does not just come and help. It's absolute. It reigns. God's grace reigns in us. It does not merely make us savable. Christ didn't die to make us savable. Christ died to save us. He did it all. And he died and was buried and rose again. And now, right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now. Right now. It saves us. As one grace preacher said, it saves us, period. That's it. God's grace saves us. God's grace does it all. Psalm 27, the psalmist wrote this. He said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Salvation is all of God's doing. He does it all from beginning to end. He's the author, the Scripture says, and what? The finisher of our salvation. I once knew an author out in Oregon, and he'd written a few books, and I asked him, I said, now, do you sit down before you write that book and do you plan what you're going to write or do you just sit down and start writing? He says, oh, no, no, no. He says, I plan exactly what I want. I do an outline of what I want. I purpose what I want to put on paper. And I just smiled. And he was a believer like us. And I, he's like, what you smiling about? I'm like, oh, my. God plans and purposes our salvation in eternity. And that which he plans and purposes in eternity, he executes in time and space. <laughs> Like you're writing that book. And then when it's all finished, he shuts it up and goes, it's all finished. When the last sheep of God is saved, when the last sheep for whom Christ died for is saved, it's all over. It's all over. Not a second before that and not a second after. It's all over. We don't know when that will be. But that's the truth. Salvation is all of God's doing. He must save us or we'll never be saved. He must save us or we'll never be saved. Add any of your works or mine to grace. It's no longer grace. It's become polluted. You've heard me say the balloon analogy. I'm going to say it again. The balloon. You take a little pin. You put a little pinprick. You might not... You can barely see that pinprick, right? 
And if you hold the balloon tight and you just you you let enough out where you can prick it and then let it go, and what happens? That balloon looks like it's whole. It's whole, it's whole, and just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You add a pinprick of works to grace, and it's no more grace. Just a pinprick. It's no more grace. No more. And think of this. The Scripture declares that no man can come unto the Father but by me. That's the Master's words. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And praise be to God, He draws. We who by nature are running away from God, we're regenerated, born again of the Holy Spirit, and He draws us to Christ, doesn't He? And we're, we're so hemmed up, we have nowhere else to go but to Christ. And now we spend the rest of our lives just keep looking to Him. <laughs> just keep looking to Him until we see Him face to face. Oh, my. See there, let's turn to John 6. Let's turn to John chapter 6, verse 44. It says there, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. See, the reason we can't come to Christ on our own is because we don't have the ability to come to Christ. What did Christ say? What did Christ say to the Pharisees? He says, I've not come for the whole, but I've come for the sick. You see, those self righteous Pharisees, they thought they had the ability to please God by stuff they did. When I was in religion, I thought that I had the ability to please God by what I did. And, by what, and, and whenever something bad happened, I thought, oh my, must have been something I did. That's just arrogance. That's just self-righteousness. God doesn't do that to His children. Now, He's like a father. He chastens us. But it's in love, beloved. It's always in love. Always. And we have no ability at all to come to Christ. There's no circumstance. We can't make ourselves more favorable to God. Because we're sinners. But in Christ, remember what, remember what the Father said? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. Amen, sister. Well pleased. If we're in Christ, God is well pleased with us. Isn't that wonderful? And there's nothing that we can do to put ourselves in Christ. <laughs> it's God who does it all. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. The next point I'd like to bring out is, since there's no cause in us why grace should be shown, we must cease from trying to earn God's grace. If you 
in, if there's anyone in here or anyone who will listen to this message who's trying to gain favor with God by something that they do, cease from your labors and look to Christ. Stop trying to do that. It'll only make you two, more twofold more a child of hell if you try to try to work your way to heaven. We cannot gain merit and favor with God by our works. We just cannot. The Scripture is so against that. Again, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. For by grace He is saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've entered into the rest of Christ, right? We ceased from our labors. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We ceased from our labors. Millions of people are trying to gain merit and favor with God. They'll tell you they're a good person and they're going to heaven. And some people think that God is indebted to send them to heaven because they, they claim to be a good person. Or because of the things they do. God's not indebted to anyone. No one. If we're saved, it's because of the mercy and grace of God. Period. He's not indebted to any one of us. Not at all. Because why? Everything we do is tainted with sin, right? If we're born sinners, which we are, then everything we do is tainted with sin. So we're sinners from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, like it's like Scripture says. Scripture says that we believe it because it's true. We and we know it, don't we? We know it. We're saved, and we know it. We know how we are. And we're saved. The only difference is when we were lost, we didn't think we were sinners. But we were. Didn't change the fact that we were. No one does good in God's eyes. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Folks say, well, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that. It's not gaining any favor with God. None. God's only... The only way we can find favor with God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. It's the only place. Look at this in Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This is talking about natural man. There's none that understand it. So every person born into this world, they have no understanding of who the one true God really is. Now, they may have cooked up in their imagination who they think he is, but that's not the God of the Bible. When I was in Catholicism, I used to think, oh, yeah, I know who God is. Yeah, I didn't know nothing. And I jumped into landmarkism. Oh, my, that was just from the, from the fire to the frying pan. More religious works. Thinking I understood who God was, I didn't even know until He showed me grace and mercy. He says, here, there's none that understand. And then look at this. There's none that seek it after God. There's no one who, who says, well, I'm going to seek God today. In their natural state. Now, after we're born again, we sure seek Him, don't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. We want to know more. Tell me more. Tell me more about my King. But before that, there's none that seek it after God. Why? Because we're all gone out of the way. Again, we're like sheep just wandering off on our own. All together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. See, the problem is people don't believe the Scriptures. 
and we can testify to that because I know before the Lord saved me, I didn't believe the Scriptures. I wasn't interested in them. Now, and I know some of you were raised in the church, but, but until the Lord regenerated you, you really didn't understand. You may have heard, but you really didn't understand the Word of God. Until God gave you life. And then this book became a whole new book, didn't it? Because <laughs> now we know the author. Now he teaches us and guides us. My. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what, by what Christ has done. And that alone. Again, God's not indebted to anyone. The next point is, when God saves us by His grace, we exhibit humbleness. Now, we don't think we're very humble. We don't. We don't. Each of us, truly, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't think we're humble. Not at all. We're, full, uh, we're so full of pride, aren't we? But other people may see that in us. If someone tells you they're humble, they're not. They're not. Because <laughs> they're looking at themselves instead of looking to Christ. He's the meek and humble one, isn't he? He's the meek and lowly one. My goodness. Why do we exhibit humbleness? Well, because we're bought, we're bought to see our absolute unworthiness of God's grace. And we're humbled. God humbles sinners. When He shows us our need for Christ, what happens to us? We're in the dust. Right? Now we know we're just sinners saved by grace. Did we think that way before? No, we thought we're well, I'm 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 pretty good. I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not, you know, I haven't done all this other stuff and I'm pretty good. Surely God won't send me to hell because I I I I sin a little bit here and sin a little yeah. Sin is sin in God's eyes, isn't it? People make big sins and little sins. It's all sin in God's eyes. It's all sin in His eyes. How much sin does it cause? Uh, how much sin will cause us to go to hell? Just one. Can't pay for it, eh? Can't pay for one sin. So Christ Jesus, our great King, comes into this world and He pays everything that God's law and justice demands and saves His people from their sins. And we cry, Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior is Jesus Christ, my Lord. We're bought to know our absolute unworthiness. We're bought to know our complete inability to save ourselves. We're, we're bought to know that we're but bankrupt sinners before before Christ, before God. And we're guilty under the law of God. And then the balm of Christ is applied by regeneration. Oh, praise God, He's forgiven me for all my sins in Christ. God's been merciful to me. Oh, it's wonderful. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Look at this. We're almost done. Look at this, Romans chapter 4. Oh, my. The believer finds himself in a blessed place. God's, God's grace has super abounded in our lives and all our sins are forgiven. We have a full pardon in Christ. That's mercy. We found a ransom. Because <laughs> He revealed Himself to us. 
Oh my, look, look what it says here. In Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man. So, the man or woman who saved by grace were blessed. Why? Unto whom God imputed righteousness without works. Righteousness allows us to be in the presence of God. So, whose righteousness is imputed to us? Christ's righteousness. Without works. That's good news for sinners, isn't it? Good news for people who have no ability to save themselves. Nothing in us that would make us worthy to receive salvation. This is good news for sinners. Under whom God imputed righteousness without works. Saying, look at this. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? How sin gets in our minds and bothers us. Sometimes the things we've done in the past comes up to haunt us. But oh, blessed is the man or woman whose iniquities are forgiven. They're all covered under the precious blood of Christ. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Oh my. If you're a believer, you're under the blood of Christ. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are what? Covered. What are they covered by? The blood of Christ. And God sees our sins and iniquities no more. This is a full, free, wonderful salvation in Christ alone. This is our hope. Isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says this in verse 8 of Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that were contrary to us, he took it, nailing it to his cross. Blotted out. The Lord will not impute our sin to us because the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on Calvary's cross, the wrath of God that was due for you and I as believers fell upon our Savior. And he bore it all. In those triumphant words he cried, It is finished. He's obtained eternal salvation for his people. Isn't that wonderful? All by his work. All by what he's done our room and place. In he was manifested to take away our sin and in Him is no sin. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, God's Passover Lamb, dies on Calvary's cross in the place of His people. This is mercy unmeasured. This is grace superabounding. The fact that Christ did that for me and you as believers. May we continuously be in awe of what He's done. The last point is this. Therefore, the flesh has no place in the plan of God. This is why grace is hated by proud natural man because it leaves them nothing to do. See, man wants to do something to gain favor with God or or religions are all based upon works. 
You start studying. You start looking out. They're all based upon something you do. But in grace, it's all about what Christ has done. So, God's grace has nothing to do with the flesh. There's only two religions in this world. I know that people say, well, there's hundreds of religions. There's really only two. Grace and works. That's it. You can boil them all down to works or grace. All other religions, no matter what their name is, has something that you have to do for your salvation, to gain your salvation. But grace says salvation is in Christ alone. Turn to Psalm chapter 3. This will be the last scripture we'll look at. If the Lord doesn't save you, you'll never be saved at all. Because no one can be saved by their works. But if, but if the Lord saves you, you'll never be lost. You're forever forgiven freely by the grace of God. And I mean forever. Christ's blood has blotted out our sins, beloved. We are fully, freely, forever forgiven of all our sins in Christ. Look at the Psalm chapter 3. It says, verse 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me. And He has for His people. This is the cry of God's people. Oh my God, for Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto who? The Lord. That's Jehovah in the, in the Hebrew there. That's the self-existent one. Salvation belongs unto Jehovah. Thy blessing is upon thy people. If you're saved today, by the grace of God, if you're born again, 